If you like sports talk with absolutely no sports talk, then welcome back to the Just Not Sports podcast. This is the show where Guy in Sports talks to the people who play and cover sports about anything they like that's just not sports. And I am your host, Brad Burke. I am a sports marketer in Chicago. And welcome back. It is good to be back on a hot mic getting ready to talk about not sports. I took a few weeks off over the holiday. I will get into that and what we did in our family a little bit later in distractions after our interview, so stay tuned. Might involve going to Disney, might also involve my daughter stalking many Disney characters in a restless pursuit of Minnie Mouse's cell phone number. So stay tuned for that. But we are back after the holiday and have some great shows coming up. But today, today, my friends, I'm taking you to a very special place, space, the final frontier. My guest today is Michael Bauman of The Ringer. You know him for his really insightful work covering baseball. He also co-hosts the Ringer MLB show. But beyond that, he does a ton of pop culture writing, of cultural criticism, entertainment writing. He's just someone who, uh, he's a five-tool player in the Ringer universe. And someone that I reached out to over the winter holiday period because I noticed he had been doing some really great writing about Star Wars. And not just... Uh, critiques of the new movie Rise of Skywalker, but also what it means to be a fan of Star Wars today, and where is this franchise going as it, you know, teeters back and forth between the visions of its creators and the um, demands of a very demanding fan base. And in the course of talking to him about Star Wars, we decided, why stop there? Let's broaden this thing out to talk about space movies in general. Let's go talk about memorable characters, memorable movie moments, you know, hard sci-fi versus more fantasy adventure. I I did threaten over email to to dust off some hot takes I've I've been sitting on for 30 years about ice pirates. Um but fortunately for you the listener, <laughs> we did not we did not get there. Um but it's a really fun conversation. You know, we talk about everything from the right stuff and movie soundtracks to a project he did at the Ringer this past fall, kind of charting out and 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 comparing different uh, space movie heroes <laughs> through the years. It's a good time, and of course, everyone's been talking about Star Wars, so we're going to talk about Star Wars. If you are a uh, a space movie lover, if you're a space fan, if you're a Star Wars fan, stick around. You're going to enjoy this interview, and afterwards. I will be back to explain why my daughter is probably getting a restraining order against her <laughs> from every Disney character you can imagine. Stick around. Here's where I want to start, and there's a lot of different stuff I wanted to talk to you about, but um, where my head went right away was 
what do we mean when we talk about a, you know, air quotes, space movie? Um, is it solely the setting or do you feel like a film has to have a particular point of view or something unique to say about space for it to actually qualify as something like that? Yeah, I, that's the real question, right? Because I've I've been a part of, of God knows how many projects that or just like sort of ad hoc list lists on on podcasts like this of talking about space movies and defining the parameters of the genre is uh, uh, a huge part of the question. Like, mm -hmm. does it have to take place in space uh, or can it involve aliens and take place on Earth like uh, Edge of Tomorrow or Predator um, or does it uh, you're when Miles Surrey and I did the astronaut matrix on the, um, on the ringer, it was, yep. we, we decided that like it space has space travel still has to be special, uh, within the, the confines of the movie. So like it can take place in the future and include something like interstellar, but not star Wars where, where space is routine. I think it's like, I think it is the, the setting. Like I, to me, like a space movie has to take place predominantly in space or be mostly about, space travel yeah i'm glad you mentioned like edge of tomorrow to me that's like and i know you can subgenre this stuff to death but i would think of that as like alien invasion like like yeah. versus or even independence day where yeah sure they they shoot out into space for a, mm -hmm. a like a, a sequence in the movie but that's a totally different experience than like ad astra which is trying to to harness the isolation of space in a really meaningful way i don't know it, yeah i i you know, I think that's probably the best way to do it is really drill down into the subgenres. And, you know, maybe I should have when I picked my topic, I should have been more specific, like done like, you know, NASA melodrama or, <laughs> or alien invasion or, you know, space opera, you know, something like that. But, you know, I, you let me be as, as broad as I was. So here we are. <laughs> no, it's good stuff. And I do want to tell all of our listeners to go check out your astronaut uh, movie uh, Matrix uh, on the ringer from from this fall. I have a question about that for you. Um, sure. Well, first of all, why don't you tell us a little bit about that piece and and how you kind of came up with it and and just the experience of putting it together? Yeah, so this is something that the ringer does from time to time. Is when there's a, a movie coming out, uh, there was like a we we do not just a, a ranking of like uh, I think it was when the when the Meg came out or some other shark movie that. Uh, we find somebody on staff who's really interested in the topic of the movie. And if there's a, a broad, um, broad library of movies like heist movies or, or disaster movies or something, they'll not they'll either make a list or in this case, uh, and I actually don't know whose idea the first one of these was, or they'll we'll make a um, a matrix on two axes. So uh, the people who got tagged for this was when Ad Astra came out. Miles Surrey, who's uh, one of our culture writers, and I uh, were charged with uh, selecting a group of movie astronauts and ranking them. I think it was from by the book to to loose cannon, <laughs> and then yeah. from from like pure pilot to mission specialist, and so somebody who's along to perform a function other than fly the spacecraft. And we picked twenty uh, from movies ranging from the right stuff to Event Horizon to Interstellar to Gravity, uh, and place them on this matrix and you know we used to i think we had three astronauts from armageddon two from uh from sunshine uh so it, and so within this this matrix miles and i also listed like superlatives uh, i forget what what like who would you trust in a in a crisis situation which space movie had the best soundtrack because this is a uh, a big debate like space movies tend to have awesome music this is yeah. just something that that we've come to notice so we talked a little bit about that and it was a lot of fun i mean this that's one of the things about 
working at the ringers occasionally uh you get pulled off your your main beat to just write about something that that you totally nerd out about so this was one of those times when i got tagged for that yeah, I'm an unapologetic uh, high school band nerd, and so I. Oh love... yeah, did you see the Ohio State thing? Uh, no, no. What they do? Oh, you need to you need to go watch the uh, uh, Ohio State marching band. Um, they did a show that was like all the the movie set sa- or the like all space movie soundtracks. So they did oh. First Man and Apollo 13, and they did the whole drill about that. Yeah, so yeah, I was a high school band nerd i was drum major of the high school marching band so nice. like, i totally totally i'm glad we're connecting over that because <laughs> it's not every day you you find another band geek in this business well uh, first of all i'm from ohio uh, but i'm from like a mac uh, uh like a maction hometown so like i kind of actively ignore ohio state except for the band <laughs> and um uh and i i will say the year after i graduated our marching band did apollo 13 which mm. is just um, an unbelievable soundtrack, and I was gonna, I was gonna say to you, Art, that, that score. Um, I know you were in the piece were going back and forth between best scores from a movie. Yeah, yeah I, I have to say that I, the two that you that you were kind of zeroing in on were that one as well as the right stuff. And mm-hmm. I just, have you? How do you reconcile the? You know, which one may come to the top? And again, I think just to give context to the listeners, we had put two thousand one in a separate bucket because it is still pulling from existing other forces it's more like a soundtrack than an actual musical score yeah I, well this is what we talked about because the right stuff pulls from like there's uh russian folk songs in the um in the soundtrack it borrows heavily from gustav holtz holst who's who as a, right. a marching band person i adore uh you know but the the original bill conti soundtrack the the pieces maybe like half a dozen or so pieces that that he did were incredible i mean that's what I love about about that score was the um, the sense of like you really feel like you're part of the journey, like you feel the anticipation of of performing the task, and then you get the exhilaration of of having performed it using a variation on on essentially the same melody. And it's just very he does this in Rocky too. He's really good at uh, at tying together the the narratives of the or you know the narrative of, of the film through music. And again, you know the same thing for. For Interstellar, for Sunshine, for First Man, for Apollo 13, for Star Trek, for Star Wars, you know, something about space brings out the best in composers. <laughs> I, now, I've heard you in that piece, I believe you said the right stuff was your favorite space movie, full stop, if I can uh, quote you accurately. Yeah. What sets that movie apart to you? So I I think among... Among the various subgenres that we talked about, and, you know, this... You know, Edge of Tomorrow is is one of my my favorite movies ever. Um, you know, I'm a huge Star Wars and Star Trek person. You know, I love every genre of of space movie, but my particular favorite. I'm just a huge early NASA nerd, um, and so anything that so I I ate up when I was a kid the right stuff the right stuff Apollo 13 from the Earth to the Moon yeah um, anything that has to do with like the the early days of of sort of supersonic flight and and space flight uh i adore um the the cast in that movie is incredible um ed harris as john glenn is incredible donald moffat as lbj is one of my favorite like five minute performances in a, in a movie ever and it's yeah it, <laughs> it combines like it's epic it's three hours long but it combines the like the the realization that this is a an earth-shakingly important thing that that is being done by by very flawed, you know, very silly. You know, it, like there's there's a heightened 
uh, silliness to to the early days of the space race that they really that that movie just really uh, hits on on the head like that that there's an absurdity to you know why do we need to to chuck Scott Glenn in a parabolic arc for 15 minutes why is that you know why is that the literally the most important thing in the world right now but you know it it uh, embraces the absurdity without um, without smoothing it over at all. And, you know, just the, from the writing to the soundtrack to, to the acting, it's, I don't know, it, I, I don't know if there's another movie quite like it. Your colleagues on the rewatchables talk about who won the movie. So who won the mm-hmm. right stuff to you? I think John Glenn, like the actual totally. historical figure, John Glenn <laughs> won the movie. Yeah. Um, failing that, I think Dennis Quaid probably won the movie like if we're if we're talking about like a, a performance um i think you know he really stands out um among all the um i mean it's just there's half a dozen performances i think sam shepherd got nominated for an oscar uh for that movie but it's you know i i think john glenn is a historical figure really comes off as as being exceptional uh in that movie which you know is, i wasn't around for the 1960s but i understand that that uh, he sort of stood out among those astronauts. Yeah, I mean, that's a great pull there. I-, I would say that Ed Harris's performance and Quaid's performance, that- those were the two that I was kind of debating. And then I also think- Pamela a- Reed's really good in that too. Yeah. Uh, as Trudy Cooper. And what about like Chuck Yeager as a historical figure? Because the further we get away from that era, now I remember Chuck Yeager as like old man who occasionally would show up in Time Magazine photo shoots, you know, wearing a mm-hmm. suit or whatever. But the further we get away, the more we zero in on just the most famous of the astronauts. And that movie does cement his legacy as- coulda, shoulda, woulda been there, but had other mm-hmm. missions to do. Yeah, that's. I, I think that's a, a good call. I mean, I, sir, I think he comes off as the coolest, um, which might just be by virtue of being played 100%. By, <laughs> by Sam, you know, peak, absolute peak Sam Shepard, um, as as opposed to like the sort of manic energy that some of the other actors bring bring to it. But like the him walking away from the, the crashed F-104, like that's the iconic image. Yeah, uh, of the film for sure. So I think, and Chuck Yeager himself is actually in the movie. Uh, he has a cameo as a a bartender at Pancho's. So <laughs> that's I, I did not know that. I'm gonna have to go YouTube that right after we get off the phone. Uh, one last question about the Matrix Matrix itself. You had a category that you were debating astronaut you'd most trust to save your life. I believe you chose Neil Armstrong. Mm-hmm. How did you pick him over Bruce Willis in Armageddon? I mean, come on, man. I, that movie is trash, in my opinion, but you cannot tell me that Bruce Willis would not have gone uh, toe-to-toe with whatever space throw, throws at him on your behalf, my friend. Uh, I I don't think it's a question of willingness. I think it's a question of capability. Like, <laughs> okay, if, I want the, if I want the my life saved in outer space, I want the guy who knows the spacecraft inside out, like the actual aeronautical engineer, and not the guy who says, hmm, maybe it's easier to, to teach somebody to to fly the space shuttle than it is to drill a hole in the ground. Like that does that doesn't scream trustworthiness to me. So, you know, if it's a matter of just of of just willingness to self-sacrifice then I think you're right, but you know, what happens when they're like, "Okay, I'm going to save everybody's lives. Now, how do I do it?" And I don't think he's got an answer for that. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. That that movie uh were you a, at the time were you a deep impact or a Armageddon person? I I was and still am a, a deep impact person. Oh. I just and I I think this is a minority opinion, and uh, you know I certainly don't intend to to sway anybody. I just 
like Deep Impact is just a little bit more serious. It seems like they thought the matter through like, I mean, more than Armageddon, which is to say they thought it through at all. Um, and I really appreciate that. So at the time, I remember liking Deep Impact a lot more. I think in hindsight, it it there's a lot of like empty calorie characters in it I, that I wish it had done a little as bit opposed more. to Armageddon. Well, no, no, no. <laughs> Armageddon is empty calories like at the candy store. <laughs> this okay. is like empty yeah. calories on the menu. Um, th- that's maybe trying to serve you something a little bit masquerading as real food. Right. Yeah, right. Okay, and, I see and that. I, I, in hindsight, I, I can't imagine deep impact coming on me being like, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to ride with this this afternoon until, you know, the, you know, Taylor Leone character washes out on the shore. It's also not a good hang in that respect. Oh, I love it. I, I've done precisely <laughs> what you said. Um, let's transition to, some other, I, I want to talk about Star Wars with you while I got you, just because that's been so in the in the news, and you've also written about it on the Ringer. And then maybe kind of circle back to some other broader space movie topics. What was your take on the Rise of Skywalker? I will, I I will say this is a spoiler um, heavy zone. You can feel free to talk about the plot of the movie. I'll give a, um, a a warning on the front end of the episode, but it's been out for a few weeks now. If you if you haven't seen it, you're you're probably not caring about spoilers. What was your take on the film? What worked for you? What didn't? Where did you kind of walk out um, feeling about it as the the culm- as as it was touted to us as the culmination of the Skywalker saga? Yeah, so I you know I think if you're a big Star Wars person, you slide into two camps: the I love the Last Jedi and the Last Jedi ruined everything. Uh, and I am as far to the to the left side of that argument on loving the Last Jedi as right. they come. Um, and so I had ex- like everything that I heard about, you know, from or read in interviews about J.J. Abrams and John Boyega and, and some of the other people who worked on on Rise of Skywalker walking back like everything that I, like specifically everything that I loved about The Last Jedi. I had extremely low uh, expectations going in um, and then I watched it and it was fine. You know, I just I think I I turned uh turn the part of myself that was really invested in in the direction of Star Wars off because I just didn't want to be disappointed in it. And then I, I went home for Christmas and my parents hadn't seen it, so we went to see it again. Um, and it was just, I was jarred by how, like, there's no moment to take a breath in that movie. And, you know, contrast that to something like Avengers Endgame, which is three hours long, but the pacing, like, it, it was, ext- like, I was astonished at how well-paced that movie was because it didn't feel like as long as it was and had as much going on as it did and contrast that to rise of Skywalker where everything like I compared it to uh, like the radio edit of a pop song where they speed it up and like take all like take a fraction out of of a second out of every beat uh, to you know cram a three minute song into 235 for for radio play that's how it felt and it was just jarring the second time through now with that said like I had fun like these are really compelling charming actors like who are who are being left to to do a lot and you know it was I was excited to see Lando and Wedge again and you know so you know it is what it is it's not the worst Star Wars movie but I went in with low expectations and I think I was less disappointed than than I feared I would be this to me felt the most prequely of the new entries to me in the sense that there was so much lore and story and that's the stuff that I don't care about with Star Wars as much like I don't need, like the first time one of these characters says the term Sith, I'm like, oh, okay, we're. Oh, uh, I'm. A- 
I'm on the other end of that. Not to, okay. to no, no, they're off, totally fine. Like I was like I was uh, like four or five when the the first uh, expanded universe novels came out, and like I think the first novel that I ever read start to finish was was a, a Star Wars novel, like a so, Timothy like, Zahn type. Yeah, yeah, I think it was literally a Timothy Zahn book, and so uh, you know, like I read about and and ingested and and you know internalized all that stuff as the lore like i love the universe and what i loved about those books was like this is a big galaxy that george lucas created and has like hinted at parts of so you go and you get you know you explore parts of it that he doesn't show you in the movies and um and from that like there's you know there are romance novels there are crime novels and there are war novels and whatever your particular um you know, and there are comic books and video games and and uh, all sorts of other stuff. And so there was the whole a whole universe with something for everybody. And Disney bought it and just swept it all away. And I sort of have sort of resented the sequel trilogy for for tearing all that up. As imperfect as me- as many of those uh, books and comic books and, and video games were themselves. You know, I just think like that was a, a rich, you know, literary culture. Not to be too dramatic about it. The that uh, has has been discarded for something that you know wasn't nearly as well thought out. I don't quite understand the, and I hate to use the term the the fans because I'm with you. I think there's all sorts of. I mean, my sister grew up a huge Star Wars fan, and she hasn't even seen the Last Jedi yet. Like you know, the, everybody mm-hmm. takes it all in in a different in a different way. But so I hate how we talk about Star Wars fans as sort of. Uh, or a lot of people in the media kind of overgeneralize, but I, I there no, is, but, oh, but you know, like when you say Star Wars fans, you know, right, what, right, what you're talking about, yeah, yeah, we're talking about a very specific subset of the fandom, which I, I don't understand their gripes with the Last Jedi and specifically the bloodline stuff. That like Ray, when, when they when he says to her, uh, Ray, you came from nothing. Um, you know, take away for the fact that that he could be lying to her. There's a lot of the dynamic in that scene that is, uh, you know, is he is he sort of feeding into these sort of toxic, controlling behaviors that keep a partner there? I mean, there there could be a lot of manipulation happening. But I, like growing up, I didn't care who Obi Wan's parents were. I I knew that like Luke uh, had this connection to Darth Vader, but I never thought about the Jedi as this. Uh, special genetic type that could yeah. uh, was something different and i'm wondering from your perspective where and when can we pinpoint when this interpretation of star wars began and and how do you think it cemented so much in the heads of the hardcore fans who would be so resistant to this idea that somebody new could come into this story and kick ass, even though we've seen Mace Windu and all these other random characters who seem to have been embraced, you know, before. I I share your puzzlement because, you know, I, I think like Luke being Darth Vader's son is, you know, that that is what it is. But yeah, I, I think maybe like some people just got so caught up in that and ignored. Like you said, you know, we were never led to believe that, that force sensitivity was a genetic thing. And if it is, by the way, if the moral of this story is the good guys are, are a, a literal master race, uh, <laughs> right? Like we need to take a step back and reevaluate the, you know, the social implications of sending that message. Um, you know, I, as, as far as the reveal itself, I, you know, it shocked me. And cause I, I expected there to be some, you know, cause that's just the way, 
that that's what everybody expected. And it was different. And there was the, the ambiguity, like you said, like maybe Kylo Ren's trying to manipulate her and, you know, you don't know whether, whether or not to trust that, uh, trust that reveal, which is the, you know, the same thing as the original Luke, or sorry, he doesn't actually say Luke, I am your father, but the original, I am your father reveal because it contradicts what Obi-Wan had said in earlier, in the earlier films. And so it, you know, I, I was just so thrown for a loop uh, immediately. And then like the message of is, was exactly like you said, like this could be, anybody could be the hero. Like, and right. they could be the hero and grow up and live this, you know, dead end life and not know that they're destined to, to become the hero. I think that's you know, just you know, in terms of, of, you know, and not every story has to be about sending a, a positive social message, but I, I really liked living in a world where that was the point of Star Wars, as brief as that was, instead of making it into something about hereditary royalty and, uh, and you know, only people with certain blood in their veins can uh, can be the hero of this story. Uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I, I don't know. I've just sort of idle and probably I have idle and, and probably very uncharitable conjecture as to why people would find that that reveal so offensive. But as far as as like a, a hard theory, I, I'm just as confused as you are. I think that what I always say to people who, when this conversation comes up is go back to the original New Hope. Vader is behind Luke. They're they're on the surface of the Death Star in their ships. And he says, the force is strong with this one. And he doesn't say something like, I can't believe a homeboy in space has the force. I thought this was gone. It, it seems so matter of fact, like, yeah, sure. People can use the force. They just choose not to. It's this ancient religion. Not everyone buys into it. They think it's mumbo jumbo. I, I, that's the biggest complaint I have with Star Wars fandom is that that is that if this is going to be a line that we have to consistently debate, I, then it's going to become. And I heard this on a podcast called um, I think it's called um, Now This Is Podcasting, and the, the, these <laughs> these these like these people who like write about Star Wars for a living, mm-hmm. and they were saying maybe Star Wars is like your favorite band. And that, like, sure, you know, Perry Farrell's still putting albums out, and I don't necessarily have to care about them. It doesn't change how I look at, um, you know, Jane's Addiction from the 90s or Porno Papyros from when I was growing up or whatever. And I do wonder if we can get to a point where it's like, sure, I didn't like Rise of Skywalker, but I don't need to sit around all day resenting its existence. I, I guess, and actually, it's yeah. a good transition into what I was going to ask you, which is, how do you go about even writing critically about these movies professionally knowing that you're going to get met with these angry, either in good faith or bad faith, voices on the internet that just cannot let these debates and arguments go or be civil. So maybe the thing, the single thing I like about The Ringer the most is that we don't have comments on our website. (laughs) True. (laughs) Uh, uh, So that's a big part of it. And also, like, I don't know, particularly with this, uh, I'm just sort of beyond caring at this point. Right. Like I'm, I'm at a point I, I like you described that like, you know, my relationship with this, you know, it's a cultural institution as far as, as far as I'm concerned, it is what it is. And, you know, I, you know, I'm not saying that like rise of Skywalker is, is illegitimate or it's not part of the Canon, but you know, it's just not the part of the Canon that, that I'm choosing to connect to the most. Like, I, you know, I'm, I'm secure in my own relationship with this, you know, with this piece of art. And, uh, I, I think once you get to that point, then, you know, you can, 
you, know, you can debate about about a lot of things, and you know, it, I think they're probably you know, I'm not, I'm I'm arrogant enough to say that like there are less legitimate interpretations than than mine, but you know, you don't have to fight that battle every time, and I, right. I think that's just that's that's something I've learned about you know writing about sports for for 15 years is you can't have, you know, you got to pick your battles and you got to choose what you're going to care about. And, you know, you should make every argument as, as thoughtful as possible, but some people are just going to disagree with you and you have to live with that. Why don't we end with some quick hit uh, questions on space moves? You got like two or three more minutes for me. Go for it. Yeah. Okay. Better historical 50th anniversary uh, moon landing uh, film for you, Apollo 11, the documentary or first man. I loved Apollo 11. Yeah, I me too. liked large elements of, of First Man. I think it was an extremely well-made movie. I think Damien Chazelle and I find different things interesting about spaceflight. That's <laughs> yeah, I was surprised by by that I didn't like First Man more than I did. But Apollo 11 is awesome. What do you think about the moon trutherism that hovers around Kubrick to this day? I don't know. There are there are more interesting conspiracy theories to believe in. I'll just put it that way. <laughs> I agree. I, that, that's a great way to put that. <laughs> um, and no shortage of them on, on no YouTube shortage, or Reddit. Yeah. Uh, how about High Life? Uh, you know, b- big uh, sort of harder sci-fi film from oh, this did, year. Oh, didn't see High Life. I'm sorry. Oh, I was going to ask you, what's going to live longer, the movie itself or the term fuckbox? Uh, well, I think... Fuckbox is, is is pulling away from the you know, pulling away from high life itself. <laughs> How about this? How about a few hidden gem space movies that people may not know, but that you would definitely recommend? Okay, um, this is this is not a hidden. I mean, I, I think a lot of my answers to to this question would would be things like um, like Sunshine. That like if you're a space movie nerd, you're probably in on this already. Uh, right. I will say that I think a, a space movie that is a lot better than uh, than it's uh, and a, a lot better and a lot more culturally significant than I think its reputation is Star Trek Six: The Undiscovered Country. I think it's uh, it's an all time great uh, Cold War movie as well as an all time great uh, space movie. And just the Christopher Plummer is is. Let's, one thing I love about Star Trek movies is they they have like the the TV cast and they bring in this super, you know, A-list or Shakespearean actor to play the bad guy and just tell him to go nuts. And nobody has gone <laughs> more nuts in a Star Trek movie than Christopher Plummer uh, in the undisco- Undiscovered Country. Yeah, I would so I would I would stand for all the even numbered Star Trek movies like two, four and six of those original original run to me are the mm-hmm. are the superiors. Yeah, I mean, you run into you run into problems once you get into the next generation and the and the rebooted movies. Uh, but yeah, I'm I'm with you. How about any big time space blockbusters that you'd say are just totally overrated? I mean, Armageddon. Uh, for, oh, yeah. I, I, think, Pro- I would argue is properly rated. To, to, properly to, to, rated. To, okay. To speak in the ringer parlance. <laughs> um. Gee, I don't know. I. I'm regretting actually not pulling the our like list of of greatest space movies up uh, before answering this question. I think you know what I think First Man's overrated, and yeah. I think uh, I don't know, after after I did this this whole thing on uh, on Star Wars, like I love a New Hope. I think a New Hope's a little bit overrated too. I think the the story's great, but they 
like hadn't really figured out how to act or or uh, build the special effects for it. And I think like you look at the difference between A New Hope and Empire Strikes Back is is bigger in terms of like production value than the difference between Empire Strikes Back and one of the more one of the sequel trilogy movies. Yeah, Empire Strikes Back to me on a rewatch is very much like Last Jedi and that visually it's just in a different class than the other two movies of its um I mean yeah. I, I like a lot about what JJ did in The Force Awakens. To me, I, I still think the new trilogy is is more of a, a win aesthetically. It like recaptures the magic of the worlds, which is probably gonna be more valuable to Disney in terms of like their theme parks and their future spin-offs or whatever else. But um, you know, hey, whatever. Oh, can I go back and for hidden gem? I don't know how hidden this is, uh, but I and also this suffers from a lot of the same, uh, a lot of the same um, production design flaws as the original Star Trek. But I love the last Starfighter. Uh, so if you oh, have yeah. gone back, it, that's that's an all timer for me. Yeah, that it, it, is that like a young Jeff Bridges? No, that, oh, that, that, that is, that's oh no, it's oh, a different no. one. Uh, no, I know exactly. That, yeah, I, you know, I'm confusing this with uh, Star, something Starman. Starman. Yeah, yeah, Starman. Yeah. <laughs> okay. No, no. The last Star. Yeah, yeah. The last Starfighter is is like uh, I don't know, sort of Star Wars meets. Uh, I don't. So like, apparently, Ready Player One involved, or no, it wasn't Ready Player One. It's the one the guy, the book the guy wrote after that is like he's he plays this video game and gets sucked into into the world because the video game is actually a training program for like fighting this galactic war and i'm like wow this guy really does love 80s pop culture because he, ser- he filed the the serial numbers off the last starfighter and tried to to rewrite it so anyway <laughs> uh last one's here you had talked a lot about sunshine event horizon i've always found space and horror to be two genres that are that work well together. You can argue Sunshine's not really horror, but I would say the last third it's of it is definitely sli- Yeah. Well, this this is one of those those subgenres is like half a dozen people go to space and they die one by one. And right. like this is you know Sunshine and Event Horizon and um it, I mean Alien is the the great granddaddy of this genre, which I rewatched over the weekend and I still adore. I was gonna just say what what are your thoughts on on why you think some of these these genres are so easily mashed up successfully and why we've had so many, you know, I don't want to say overuse the term classic here, but there've been a lot of really effective, terrifying space movies just because of that haunted house element. You have nowhere to run. You're just kind of stuck in in exactly. The place. Yeah, and it's why there's so you know, like you get the the claustrophobia of the submarine movie, uh, with like knowing that if you go, you can't escape that because if you go outside, you'll die. Um, and then, like, just being being in space, you know, Alien is is like this. I'm, I'm sure there are others that I'm blanking on that. Like, there are so many different ways to because you're playing with settings and, um you're playing with settings and technology that don't really exist. It gives writers and directors and uh, and art directors and you know, a lot of creativity to to build really scary stuff and like you know border on the supernatural if, if uh, that's a direction that they want to go so I think there's just it's it's a scary setting to begin with I mean and you don't need like any made up technology or or aliens or supernatural elements because I mean gravity is terrifying just all on its own and that could take place tomorrow um, but the the ability, like you take that scary, um, that scary premise and the scary setting, and then just you could build whatever you want onto it. And I think that's 
don't know, that's what makes Alien and Sunshine are probably at the top of the heap in, in that genre for me. Um, but yeah, you get, uh, you can do whatever you want with, with those tools. It's a good set of tools to play with. Right. And, and last one here. So the movie Interstellar, when it came out, I wasn't a huge fan. And I've liked it more and more as I've gotten further away because I feel like the theme of it around these these lies that we're going to tell our fellow uh, mankind in order to save the species that you know the the sacrifices that we'll make honestly or dishonestly I think is an interesting theme as we talk more and more about climate change and who's going to ultimately solve this problem and it made me think I wonder if that movie will age particularly well and that. 20 to 30 years later, you know, uh, that people might go back and revisit it and say, hey, this might be a little bit ahead of its time thematically, whether or not you like the fact that he's got a space closet or whatever at the end. Spoiler. Um, Yeah. So from your perspective, I was just going to ask you not so much about Interstellar, but just do you feel like there's a particular movie or movies in this genre or any of the subgenres that that will age and be understood much differently down the line that you're you're, you're kind of bullish on its long term impact? Uh, you know, if we, I think Interstellar is a really good pick for something that's going to age well. I think like the, it was earnest in a way that I don't know, like weirdly, I don't know. I, I think a lot about art or TV shows or, or movies that were sort of mocked for, for being earnest, uh, in Obama's America and how they, they play under Trump's America. <laughs> right. And I think Interstellar, like, I think you could level that charge at Interstellar or like Parks and Rec and those two are, are aging in on such divergent courses. Um, but just, I think because of the kind of, of earnestness, uh, and you know, I'd go back to, um, you know, movies that some of these movies were, you know, they, they weren't like critical flops, um, or like sort of ambivalent, uh, responses like interstellar. Um, but like Wally was really well reviewed, uh, when yeah. it came out and it was awesome. And I think that's going to hold up extremely well. Um, I, you know, I think edge of tomorrow is another one just because it's, mm-hmm. you know, and I wonder, cause they're working on the sequel and I wonder if it, it was just so perfect. And I, if they had left it well enough alone, it would have stood up like, this is the, the $250 million action movie. If you tell a story somewhere other than a Disney owned property, um, you know, and like, it's based on like a graphic novel too. It's not like it's a, it's a phenomenally original story. You know, you could see where it, it takes the cues from. Uh, but you know, I, it was just such like, I loved it because it was such a breath of fresh air. Uh, you know, when you get movies that look like that and they're all you know part of the same three or four storylines. I love edge of tomorrow. I, and I, I'm so angry by its weird fake title, you know, re- post release, you know, back and forth as, mm-hmm. as they tried everything to breathe new life into it. I'm like, man, th- let this thing get to TNT couple times a year and in five years this will be seen as one of his better you know late career movies it's it's one of my favorite tom tom cruise movies from might be like top five from ed you know up there with like a few good men and uh you know uh top gun and you know the other classics it's what it's one of my favorite movies of the 2010s in any genre well, also aging well will be this interview. So whenever the aliens hear it, um, yeah, you, know, you said it, twenty minutes, and, and I'm you sorry. Did, I think you under I think you underestimated my enthusiasm because <laughs> I could go no. for another 
another half hour. No, I, I certainly appreciate it, man. You'd be great. Uh, I guess as we as we sign off, give me the. I have not watched the Expanse. I know you're a fan. Give me your 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 sixty second spiel on why I should start. And I was a big okay. Battlestar Galactica person. I, I I feel like this is cut from the same cloth in terms of it's it's pretty sci fi ish, but also very much uh, sounds like a human drama. Yeah. So he, I actually you could go to the Ringer dot com and Google my name in the Expanse and. I think it was at the end of season two. I I uh, wrote about how The Expanse will scratch the itch for any show that you love that was off the air from Parks and Rec to Mad Men to Battlestar Galactica to Firefly to, uh, uh, to True Detective, uh, like all these movies that like, because my contention is like, you don't want another Star Wars movie. You make you want another thing that will make you feel the way Star Wars did the first time. And this did that for so many other shows that, that I love. Uh, the easy comparison is just because the two guys who wrote the books used to work for George R.R. R. Martin. And it's a, a like it's a political military drama against an outside supernatural force uh, that this is the new Game of Thrones. But I think that's 100 percent accurate. Um, and, you know, you it's. I think it started small enough that like they really just let it be what it was in, in terms of, uh, of making the TV show. Like there wasn't, it, it started small and has grown organically in scope as the, as the books have. Um, and it's based on great source material. It's got some great actors, uh, um, some great performances. Uh, but like it, I think it, battle, if, if you want a new Battlestar Galactica, this is a show. If you want a new game of Thrones, this is a show. Um, it's just probably my favorite show on TV right now. All right. I, now I have two little kids running around, so I'm going to have to find the time for it. But when I, once I get through it in like 2026, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit you up for, for some, some hot takes. <laughs> All right. I'll, I'll be happy to talk to you again then. And... We are back in the sports world, athletes, coaches, media. They all do interesting things. And then we, the fans, um, we tell them, stop being interesting. Get back to watching game film. That's ridiculous. Life is just work and the things that distract us from work. So on this show, I end every week by celebrating uh, my own version of locker room distractions and tell you what's been distracting me. And as foreshadowed off the top... We got to talk about Disney World, man, and my kid at Disney World, because for back-to-back years, I have brought my family to Disney World, and my daughter has been on a relentless pursuit of Minnie Mouse's personal cell phone. So let me start by saying I'm very, oh, I don't know what the term is, Um, leery, maybe self-conscious about saying that we've gone back to Disney World in back-to-back years for whatever reason maybe it's because you know i didn't grow up near disney i I, when you listen to people who like work in la or somebody talk about disney as just something you you roll down and do the way that here in chicago we might talk about six flags or in cincinnati growing up the way we would talk about uh king's island shout out to king's island with the the beast the the wooden roller coaster that sometimes would kind of pop off the back of the tracks when you were riding it um yeah unsafe but, uh, you know, Disney always seemed to be like kind of a far off, magical, bigger ticket item that, you know, only came up every now and then. And and yeah, sure, like 
um, you know, my dad took me there on his honeymoon with his second wife, which probably, uh, as a child, as a, as a, someone in my formative years probably made, made it seem like, Hey, maybe, uh, Disney isn't my number one destination. But what I will tell you is what I can say about Disney is I never thought of myself as becoming someone who's just rolling down there often. Even when we had kids, my wife and I were like, we're not really Disney people. Like, this isn't our jam. It's not for us. Like, we're not going to be the types of people that are taking our kids down there. Now, last year at this time, took our daughters to Disney World and got to say, pretty magical. They To see the excitement of the Disney experience through, through the lens of a five-year-old and a two-year-old was awesome. So we just kind of said, hey, let's play the hits this year. <laughs> let's let's roll back. My mom retired. We all went down there together, the five of us, you know, figuring, hey, it's going to be a little bit even more fun. Uh, Charlie's going to be six. Violet's going to be three. We're going to have more mobility, more ability to do stuff. Kids are going to understand things. And um, like last year, uh, all my kid wants to do is like, dial up <laughs> Minnie Mouse. Last year, kind of infamously, I think I talked about it on the show. Um, we met, we did like a meet and greet with Belle, like a live action Belle from Beauty and the Beast. And Charlie kind of approached her and said, can I get Minnie Mouse's cell phone? And like this poor, like working <laughs> actress had to be like, I don't, I don't know what to say to that. I've never heard that before. I don't know what to tell you. This year, I figured she's outgrown that, right? Like she can't remember that she did that. That was kind of a fluke. It's a funny story. Ha ha ha. No way, man. We get down there and like the first things we do, she's just rolling up to characters and being like, Daisy, uh, where's Minnie's phone number? Ariel, she asked, can I get Minnie's phone number? She asked, um, Ellen, Elena of, of Avalor or whatever that, that character is. She has uh, Doc McStuffin. She has Vampirina, like you name it. Uh, my daughter wanted to just use them as a vehicle to get the personal cell information to Minnie Mouse. I mean, my, my daughter essentially is on a mission to dox Minnie Mouse. And I don't know, I don't quite know how to handle this. So finally, I just, I'm like, you know what? I'm pulling out all the PR spin I can on this. And so I said, Charlie, when you look at Minnie Mouse down here, she she can't talk out loud. Now that's a that's a hard conversation to have with your kids anyway. Here's what I rolled with to explain that. The characters don't talk because kids come to Disney World from all over the world. They don't all speak languages, and she doesn't want, Minnie doesn't want those kids to feel left out. So she doesn't actually speak with her mouth. She just speaks expressively in languages everyone can understand, like hugs and autographs and smiles and pictures and that kind of stuff. My daughter seemed to buy that. And then I said, because she doesn't talk in this form that she takes, unlike her cartoon form, which, which you might watch at home, because we watched a shit ton of Mickey's Christmas Carol this year. Let me just tell you that. Um, but because she doesn't talk, she doesn't need a cell phone. And she's not going to be able to call you because even if you called her, she won't be able to answer. And my daughter was like, okay, that's, I get it. Like, you know, that makes sense. Okay, that's fine. We spent the rest of the day going to the park, feel like we had gotten over this. It was all good. That night, I'm not making this up. I'm not shitting you. Like, this is a legitimate story. That night, we, we stay at the park. It's dark. It's spectacular, spectacularly lit. There's like a nighttime Christmas party. Of course, we have to pony up like four quarts of blood and marrow to even get in the door because things like just prints, prints money uh, uh, from the, the 
um, the, the U.S. Mint that is my wallet. And we're sitting there, and this big show starts in front of the castle, and it's all about Minnie inviting her friends over for a Christmas party. And how is she doing that? With a fucking cell phone. And my six-year-old stands up and runs to me and hugs me and goes, Daddy, Daddy, do you see? Minnie's got a cell phone, which means we can call her again. It was like, I don't know, man. It's like it's like my daughter is like Adam Sandler in Uncut Gems only for, for Minnie's digits. And I don't know what to do. And now she won't believe my lies. She knows Minnie has a cell phone. She's seen Minnie do an entire show based around calling her friends and having a cell phone. And I'm out of answers. I'm, I'm just out of answers. So... Okay, that is our show for this week. I want to end with some shout-outs. First of all, shout-out to Disneyland and all the actors and actresses that were playing the parts and 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 parrying my daughter's relentless pursuit of Minnie's, uh, of, of Minnie's cell phone. <laughs> I, I, I don't really know what to say. Also, shout-out to Michael Bauman of The Ringer. Really enjoyed talking space movies, talking Star Wars, talking band yeah marching band i'm a proud band alum i gotta say uh love that stuff and it was a great conversation so go check him out on the ringer and follow him on twitter on instagram uh you know gearing up for the baseball season maybe one day the cubs will sign somebody i don't know thanks for putting up with me over the holidays as i took a few weeks just to be with family kind of gather myself uh tie up some loose ends around the house and around work uh but we're we're back and we're better than ever we're gearing up for New shows next week. We've got Nick Sundberg of the Washington Redskins talking about his loads of love program, <laughs> clean clothes for uh, underprivileged kids. It's an awesome effort. He's a nominee for the NFL, uh, the NFL's Walter Payton Man of the Year award, and just you know, I think you're really going to enjoy his story. And it's 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 a very in depth dive into uh, those types of charitable efforts that sometimes people talk about, but you don't really hear the full story on. So you're going to really enjoy that. And then more shows coming after that. And we're going to be checking in with Gareth. Uh, I've been talking to him over the break. He is, he's doing well, uh, you know, in, in full recovery mode from his cancer. So we'll, we'll make sure to try and check in with him uh, in the weeks ahead as well. So uh, stick around, stay tuned, more to come, and excited to be back on the mic and in the immortal words of Shaquille O'Neal, Booty Rappers. Hey, booty. Right